Hi, everyone. This is Jose with the Criminology Academy. If you aren't already, make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at the Crim Academy. After listening, please let us know what you think by leaving us a review wherever available. This podcast is sponsored by the Department of Sociology at the University of Colorado Boulder. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Criminology Academy, where we are criminally academic. My name is Jose Sanchez. And my name is Jen Toslieb. And today we are going to not have a guest. Instead, we're going to talk to you about our experiences as TAs and RAs, that's teaching assistants and research assistants, and sort of what that entails and what we've been asked to do when we're filling those positions. Well, so we're not doing introductions today. I think everyone has heard enough about us at this point. But as Jose mentioned, we're going to talk about kind of like the three pillars of academia. So we're going to start off by talking about graduate teaching assistantships, then move into graduate research assistantships. And lastly, talk about service and doing engaging in service work as a grad student. Before we jump into that, we thought it would be good to just kind of highlight what our experiences have been as teaching assistants and research assistants. So Jose, I'll let you go first. Okay. So I've done two semesters as a TA, my first semester and my third. I've done four semesters as an RA on an NIJ grant, and I'm currently doing both. So my RA-ship is my halftime appointment with a five-hour overload to be a TA for our graduate data to class. And then, so at CU, the University of Colorado Boulder, I've been a TA for five semesters now, but unlike Jose, I did come in as a research assistant. So my first semester I spent as a research assistant and then my third and fourth semesters. So I've done three total semesters as an RA. And then I had one semester where I was both working on an Arnold funded project called the Blueprints Project. And then I was also the TA for our data one, our graduate statistics class, the first one. Yeah. And I think it's not uncommon for people to come in and RA their first semester, but I think the most common option is to have people TA their first semester. At least I know in our department, I've only talked to three people that came in as RAs their first semester. Yeah. I don't think it's very common. Yeah, no. So it's like not unheard of, but it's not usually what happens. Yeah. So how about we get into talking about what a TA is and what it is that we're supposed to do when we're TA? You want to start? You want to start talking about the reader grader option? Yeah, so there's a couple options. The first one is reader grader. I've done that once. And that's basically you're not leading any recitations, which we'll get into what those are a little bit later. All you're doing is basically reading people's homework and giving them a grade and grading their exams or whatever it is that the professor has chosen to be the grading system. And that's your only responsibility. You're not, although for when I did it, 
David kind of threw me a couple of curveballs and had me lead a couple lectures, but that's not actually what is asked of you typically when you when you're just a reader slash grader. Yeah, and we've both held that role in various capacities. Jose's actually done that as like a his full semester gig versus mine has just been kind of a partial load option. Yeah. Although yeah. I guess I'm doing that right now too with data too. Like I'm not actually yeah. I'm not actually I'm not even attending lectures for this one. I'm simply receiving assignments and grading them as yeah, they so come. We, we have the full spectrum of the reader grader option here. And then I guess the other most common kind of teaching assistantship would be when you have your own recitations. So at least at CU, this means that you are attending lecture that the professor is lecturing on, and you also teach your own classes. So for us, it can take on a variety of different looks as far as what you're teaching. So some professors will want you to mostly summarize what they've talked about or go over homework assignments. And some other professors will actually have you provide new information to the students. And then some will have you do both. So summarize and provide some new information. And typically, at least here in our experiences, you teach three of these recitations a week with about what, 100 students total? Between 101 and 120. Yeah, so I think we should... So I also add that you see this more at like the bigger schools where they'll mm-hmm. cram three to 500 students in a single class. And so they will meet the whole couple hundred or whatever will meet once a week for a lecture from the professor. And then they get split up into smaller 30 to 40 people classes that the TA will then sort of lead. And you can't usually just kind of offshoot to whatever it is you want. It's usually like Jen said, sort of umbrellaed under the bigger class. And depending on who the professor is, they'll ask you to do something a little different. But yeah, it's usually 30 to 40 people per recitation. And then depending on how big the class is, you'll either be doing it your own. So you'll have, so if like the class is only say 150 to 200 people, you might be the only TA doing recitations a huge class it's like a hundred students I think oh yeah I guess so because if you end up like say like around 30 per recitation what's that oh yeah but that's about 90 okay yeah so not 200 but if we so from 200 and you usually end up with a team of TAs my first semester I was on the team of four and an older student will usually be the lead TA and they kind of show you the ropes and normally if I mean There's positives and negatives to both of these options, at least in my experiences. So I've done both of these. When you're the only TA, you have like all of the freedom, right? You get to decide what you want to talk about. I mean, obviously with the instructor, the professors, you know, under their guidance, but you have a lot more freedom in what you want to talk about versus if you're on a team, you all at least somewhat need to be talking about the same material. So everyone is getting the same information. So sometimes it'll be like everyone kind of talks about what we're going to talk about. And then we each come up with our own slides. I've also done it to where one person has made the slides for one week and then everyone just teaches that same information. So yeah, you're a lot more restricted as far as the information you're going over. 
in a team setting. Yeah, so that's how we did it when I was on the team. Each We split up the weeks and each person was responsible for creating the slides for that week. You know, there was some flexibility into how you delivered the information, but the key points were always the same. We had a little bit of flexibility and so we had to give out quizzes. And so we were able to sort of design our own quizzes. But some of the challenges that can come up with a team of TAs is, at least in my experience, two of the TAs would butt heads all the time whenever we had our our weekly meetings, while the other TA and myself would kind of just hang back and let them hammer out their issues. The only unfortunate part was the meetings would then start running like super long while they were trying to hammer out and the professor was trying to, would try to like mediate the meeting to see if we could reach a consensus. And then sometimes the two TAs would butt heads somehow manage to agree with each other, but it, the, the, their choices would end up being a drag on me and the other TA. Yeah. Like our, like our workload, like they would decide to somehow take on more work but because we have to remain consistent, like every TA had to pick, had to take up more slack. So it can be cool, especially if you're working with someone that's so for like, it was my first semester at CU. So having an older student kind of shows the ropes was nice, but there's certainly the dynamic can get a little, a little funky. I think it all comes down to like your teaching philosophy too, right? We all have different opinions or perspectives on how teaching should be done and how much feedback people should get on papers that they turn in and, and how tough to be on grading, which we can talk. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about grading in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I think it's good because it it starts helping you sort of realize what kind of instructor you want to be. Mm -hmm. Like if that's what you're planning on doing in the future, you kind of start, I guess, being in like that team setting can kind of start, having those ideas start coming like if someone says they let's take late assignments and your like immediate reaction is like no that sounds terrible then that's kind of a good indicator that you may not want to be a professor that takes late assignments in the future yeah totally and then yeah we mentioned that there's different expectations for attending lecture based off of these so right now jose is just doing a grading function and not going to lecture for my like half and half semester, which was more half and half versus an overload, like what Jose is doing right now. I did go to lecture and I was a grader, but I didn't have recitations. And then normally if you have recitations, you are definitely expected to go to at least the majority of the lectures. But again, that all depends on the instructor. Yeah, definitely. So because I am on an overload, so I'm only allowed to do five hours on top mm-hmm. of my my 20, my part-time 20. The professor and I decided that it'd be a waste of my time to show up to lecture because lectures are like three hours. So there goes three of my the five majority. hours of the week. So you, this this is something that you need to hammer out with, with the professor at the beginning of the semester. Yeah. And I think that's a good segue to kind of move into maybe not handling the instructor, but like working with the instructor and being on the same page. I've worked with three, three or four different professors at CU as in a teaching capacity. And then I was also a TA when I was at Iowa State and worked with two different professors. 
and everyone has a different style for how they want to handle their teaching assistants. And so, I mean, it's pretty common to at least maybe not have a sit down, although I think most people like to have a sit down before the semester starts to meet with their TA, but definitely some kind of communication. So everyone can get on the same page as far as expectations what grading should look like, what kind of average they want in the class, how often you should be going to class. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So when I was with my team, we met once a week with the instructor. We met actually like two weeks before the semester started and we spent, oh, I don't know, how long was it? Three, maybe four hours. She wanted time. to really have us well, she had us like really be involved with like the development of the syllabus for the entire class, not just our own. But then the other instructor that I TA'd for, it was usually a NEMA or a text check-in, like anything that we need to discuss. No, not really. Yeah. Yeah. So on top of like the, the meeting before the semester actually starts, yeah, some people, like Jose was mentioning, like to meet pretty regularly. And I feel like that And that was a thing for me, like earlier on, I don't know if you noticed that change, Jose, but it's like, now that I'm farther along in the program, they're like, just let us know if there are issues. Yeah. I think it depends on team composition. So I know, I know some people didn't really matter who the instructor was. They'd always have, or or it didn't matter who the TAs were. Like they could have, I think there was a point where some of my, the people in my cohort were in teams of year two plus. TAs and like they always still had to meet on the regular. Yeah, I think I think if you're a solo TA, that's when you might get a little bit more of the let me know yeah. if something comes up. That's probably fair. Yeah, because yeah. I think with the teams, you kind of have to start coordinating a little bit so that you stay consistent. And I one other thing that I think is really important to point out is that while yes, your job as a TA is to support the instructor they should also be supporting you. And like, if you don't know, like if you're teaching recitations and you have no idea what to cover that week, don't feel like you have to handle it all on your own. Like ask them, but that's also their job. Their job is to be there for you and to help you. And like, if you're behind on grading, don't, don't just ignore them. Let them know that you're behind and you can figure it out together. And I mean, it's their job to communicate their expectations of you. It's mm-hmm. not your job to have to ask, although you might have to if you are unsure about things. Yeah, definitely. And it's also good to keep them in the loop when things come up. So if you're dealing with, I don't want to call them a problem student, but a student that might be a little difficult to, to deal with. Don't feel like you have to sort of handle that on your own because they're in your recitation and you're the one that's dealing with them for the most part. Some professors will tell you if someone starts getting a little unruly, pass them on to me, I'll step in. Or when I was staying with recitations, she would always tell us, like, if you need to make a a tough call, do so, use your own discretion, make the call, and then let me be the bad guy. Tell them the professor said this, this, and this. So if you have an issue with it, take it up with them. And then she'd tell us, just send us it, just send me an email kind of appraising me of the situation. So if that student does reach out, I kind of know what's happening and 
and I can handle it from there. Like, I need to know what your decision was so that I can have your back. Yeah. And that's also a really good thing to set ahead of time. Like, talk about that. So that way, when you do get, because it's inevitable, you're going to run into a student like this, whether it's because of grading or because they're having a tough semester or whatever it may be, it's going to happen. And so knowing how the professor or the instructor wants you to handle it before it actually happens is important because yeah, you want to know if you have more freedom or if you need to be more careful with how you handle the situation. Yeah. But I mean, to me, a good instructor is going to have your back. Like what you were talking about, Jose. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think the, then we can start moving into a recitation versus being on your own. Oh, wait, there's one more thing I want. It's not necessarily about the instructor, but Jose, I don't, I don't feel like you've had the pleasure of this experience. Maybe you have, but so my like first time teaching, it was a lower level undergrad class and inevitably I had multiple parents reach out to me about their kids' grades. Like these are not kids, right? They're adults. And one thing that I think is important to point out because I didn't know how to handle this situation at first. Like I had to ask the instructor, but like you can't talk to the parents about these students' grades. They're adults, so you can't do that. So you can politely respond back. And it's always good to let the instructor know. I forget. Too. Is that a HIPAA violation? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So the instructor that I TA for she let us know pretty much on day one like if someone re- like if anyone but the student reaches out to you you can't say anything to them there's like there's, check with your school because i don't know if this is like across the board but with cu there's there's like certain things that they can do in order for us to be able to release that information to them but for the most part most people don't do it so yeah be really careful yeah you don't want to get in trouble for that yeah. kind of stuff and you know maybe you wouldn't but also, yeah, just don't put yourself in that kind of situation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And again, that's also, again, communicate with the instructor. Yes. Yeah. Never leave them in the dark about stuff like that. It's just for the best that you let them know. Because I've never had a problem with the with an instructor. I know other people have, but my experiences have all been positive when it's come to tricky situations like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So yeah, let's move into talking about handling recitations in your own class. So let's start with recitations because we've both done that already. Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't taught my own class yet. I'm scheduled to do it in the summer. But one thing that I do feel I can say with confidence is recitations offer you a bit of a safety net that you don't have when you're teaching your own class. Because you always have that instructor that you can sort of fall back on. One hundred percent, yes. With us, with with your own class, you're kind of gonna take the shitstorm that comes with any decision that you make. If because you're not from experience, gonna, <laughs> yes, <laughs> you're not gonna make everybody happy. Like it's just not gonna happen. But at least with the recitation, you can be like, "Hey, professor, here you go. Here's <laughs> here's the student." <laughs> I'm tagging you in. Yes. Oh, man. Um, But, 
Okay. So there's always the question, like whenever I'm talking to incoming PhD students, there's always the question of a, well, I guess we can tie in like first day of class stuff too, but like when you're teaching your own recitations, do you have your own syllabus or do you just focus on the like overall classes syllabus and then just kind of discuss your expectations and two, how to dress? I think those things come up a ton, especially amongst maybe the like younger incoming PhD students, because, you know, it's possible that you might be 21 and coming in and teaching recitations for the first time and your students might also be 21 or older. And so it's like, how do you deal with those power dynamics? Yeah. So I feel like let's start with the syllabus stuff. Have you ever, Jose, have you ever made your own syllabus? So we did. So we did for when I TA for deviance, when we had recitations, we each all had our own syllabus, but we didn't put down any like week by week breakdowns. So that was like the main core syllabus. Our syllabus was more, what is it that we're going to expect from you in recit in like my recitation, what you can expect from me. And I, I guess we can start blending it a little bit, but I set sort of my classroom expectations. What was the times that you could expect me to email you back if you sent me an email? Let's see what, what else? My office hours. So it was like a much shorter, like one page, maybe two page document. So it wasn't as yeah. thorough as, and then, you know, you had like all the, we had like the disclaimers that CU wants you to have on there. Yeah, I think my first semester was the only semester that I made a syllabus for recitations. And it included all of the same things that you just mentioned, Jose, in particular, like, I mean, we're teaching the majority of the people listening to this are probably in criminal justice or criminology. Everyone knows we talk about some kind of possibly sensitive subjects and some Mm -hmm. like polarizing subjects. And so I think it's really important to like set you know, that expectation of we're all adults. It's fine if you want to debate ideas, but we're not debating people and it needs to be civilized. And if it's Mm. not like, I will kick you out. Like I have kicked students out of my classes before. It's okay to do that if they're being disruptive and they won't stop and you've given them warnings. And yeah, email expectations. What are yours? So mine has always been my sort of business hours are from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Anytime before that, anytime after that, it's up to me if I want to respond to you or not. But weekends, chance, weekends are never on the table. Never. Sometimes if I tell, like, usually I might respond outside of hours if it's an emergency. Again, weekends are never on the table. Yeah. But if it's a real emergency, I might respond and if not, then you'll get a response sometime within the next set of business hours. So 10 to 5, pretty hard on that with a few exceptions, of course. But yeah, I would not suggest leaving that vague. Otherwise, yeah. you're going to get, I mean, you're still going to get emails at like 1, 2, 3 in the morning. With them freaking out. Absolutely. Especially before a test or a paper or mm-hmm. whatever. But then you can always sort of lean back on your syllabus and say, Hey, I told you what my business hours were. You'll get a response when you get a response. Do you also give like a time frame? Like I will respond within so-and-so many hours. 
I put as soon as possible, but guaranteed within 72. Okay. Yeah. So mine are really similar to yours. I, I mean, right out of the gates, I always tell them and I repeat it throughout the semester. I do not work on weekends. Now, sometimes I do. We're grad students. You got to work on the weekends sometimes, yeah. but that's my time. And so but I usually use that for like my, like either my own like coursework yes. or like my own research and not for like teaching stuff. Exactly. And I mean, mine are a little bit a lot. So I start at like 8 a.m. So I'm like eight to five is when I will be around email. And I say 48 hour window, not including weekends, because that is your 48 hour window. And they'll email you like Friday at 5 p.m. And you'll not get back to them before Monday at 8 a.m. And they'll be like, why haven't you responded to me? Yeah. But yes. Be clear about this. We can't this is something I'm like very passionate about because I just got, I mean, I've been like slapped around by students, not really, but like it feels like I've been slapped around by students about email. And it's just so frustrating because you'll get, I mean, I've gotten like 10 emails from one student in less than 15 minutes because I wasn't responding one time. And it was at like 10 PM on a Friday. Like, I'm not here to just respond to emails all the time. Yeah. The one thing I like to do is like once I start my mom, quote unquote, off the clock, I turn off the no- like the push notifications on my school email. Okay. Or I'll have it set to sort of refresh like every one or two hours because, I, you know, in, just in case like my advisor needs to yeah. get a hold of me or whatever. But even with him if it's an emergency i'm like well he'll text me if he really needs me right, right now otherwise he can probably wait that's uh, a good when idea I'm, when i'm back on i've never thought about changing email like that i've always wished that they put like you know like on my phone i can set what hours i want my phone to go on do not disturb right i wish gmail would let me do that okay gmail get with the program <laughs> we need you to update <laughs> yeah the, um, the other thing i would probably not recommend a lot i'm thinking of bringing it back next semester and kind of see how it goes is phone numbers i tried it my first semester teaching and it was like your cell phone like my so so my first semester i did my own personal number and it was an unmitigated disaster i be i think it lasted maybe all of two weeks before i was like okay you know what cell phone is off the table you had people calling Um, you no, I didn't. I didn't. I told them I don't answer calls. Send me a text. Ooh, so but, you had undergrads texting your personal phone number? Yeah. So that did, <laughs> no. that did not go over well. So what I may try next semester, I'm still debating it because it was pretty much a disaster. Oh, so that's the other thing. Always make like if you do have a syllabus, always make sure that you put in like a disclaimer that it is subject to change that way. Yeah. Like you can't get nailed to the cross in case you do something and i made sure to put like in huge red letters like like this is a trial run we're gonna see how this goes and it is up to me whether we like ax it or keep it and like i was like no like we're done here like yeah do not bother texting me because i am not answering anything like i will block you immediately oh man that's Um, so wild no i've never had an undergrad text me not for like teaching so for next semester, I'm thinking of maybe using a Google voice number, but even okay. then I'm, I'm still a little, cause that at least like you can silent or. Were they like, just like 
I just can't even imagine getting text messages. Like we're, I know how I text and I text like seven messages in a row before anyone responds. Jose knows this. He's yeah. been the subject of my text <laughs> messaging. I just can't even imagine that happening from undergrads. It's no, just, yeah. My mind yeah, is blown I, that you did this and that you're thinking about doing it again. Don't do it. <laughs> I don't know. I might not. I might not. Now that I'm thinking about it, like, it was a pretty terrible experience. I thought, you know, let's try, let's let's try something yeah. new, see how it goes. But no, no, it was an unmitigated failure. I'd All right. Well, should office we put, hours. Should we put our recitation syllabus syllabi on the website? Do you still have yours? Maybe. It might be in my I'll have to check if we can find it. Sure. It might, it might be used to somebody. I mean, if you want, like, you want to see what some of them are like and you don't have access to any of them, we'll try, we'll try and find them and put them on our website. Yeah. So let's see what else office hours that I think that's, so what is it for us? I think it's like five hours total of office two. hours. Is it two? Two, two a week. Yeah. And what do I feel like mine were longer? I don't know. It might have been. I feel like now because of the pandemic and how we went online, now it's like I'm finding it hard to get my students to actually come in person. So like I'll go and do my in-person office hours and everyone will just want to meet with me on Zoom, which is tricky kind of to navigate because if you have a student who walks in, then it's like you have to figure out how to deal with that. And so that, that could be something for people to think about too. If you want to have like half of your office hours via zoom and half in person, well, that's a kind of a good idea. Maybe I'll do that next semester. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if you use it, but I rely pretty heavily on Calendly because I can sync my, my calendar with it. And yeah. especially if you're doing like zoom office hours, mm-hmm. like I hate just kind of sitting on zoom waiting to see if someone drops in or not. At least that way I can see like, oh, no one has signed up for office hours. So like, I don't have to stress about it too much. And I also find that people are a little more reluctant to show up if they have to schedule something as opposed to just drop in. So Calendly, I recommend using something like Calendly. Yeah, I've used that like when I taught my own class over the summer that's how I scheduled everything. Like if you want to meet with me then you have to make an appointment and it works really well. You can put in your zoom link and all of the password information and stuff if you're using that. So yeah. Calendly. Calendly. I've always said it Calendly. I don't know how you say it. I I keep saying Calendly, but that's probably not right. The other thing I like about it too, is it helps prevent like the student dropping in and then just kind of sitting there for two hours. Because you can schedule it to be whatever chunk of time you want. So I think I have mine set up for 15-minute chunks mm-hmm. right now. Of course, no one's taking me up on them. Nope, never. So far. And so, you're even, you're doing stats. It just Yeah, I know. Mind. I'm like, not even like just stats. I'm doing like the data two class. Yeah, that like is that. one thing I will say. If anyone is teaching statistics, good luck with office hours. They... Well, except Jose's experience, but my first time TAing stats undergrad class was just like 17 students in my office at once all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. 
classroom expectations. I feel like we kind of skipped classroom expectations. How do you handle day one of either recitation or your own class? I mean, I kind of mentioned this already. Like I do not tolerate like people being rude to each other. I just don't. Like I, you can disagree all you want about ideas. I think it makes for an interesting discussion and I like having those challenging debates, but do not put someone down. Don't make them feel stupid or that their ideas are wrong because maybe you just have different opinions about the world and that's fine. And so like, that's like one of my main things is like, if you are rude and you don't stop when I tell you to stop you're leaving. That's one thing. And then I've also kind of gotten on this kick of no laptops, no cell phones, which I was not like this until this semester when the professor I'm teaching for does not allow laptops unless you have like a disability or what is it? Accommodation. Accommodation. Yeah. There you go. Where you like need a laptop or some like I let them use like the tablets with the writer things on them so they can write their notes on tablets. But I really kind of like the no laptop. It's like, they're much more engaged. They're much more willing to be present in the classroom. They're not distracting each other by looking at Instagram or whatever. So that's also one thing that it looks, I mean, their facial expressions at first were like, excuse me, I can't use my laptop. But the professor had already said that in lecture. So I felt like I had that leeway to be like, well, this is your expectations in lecture. Kind of goes back to Jose, what you were mentioning before. He kind of had that like crutch. And so we're doing the same thing in recitation. And yeah, the phone thing, like if you have to answer your phone, like it's 50 minutes, right? A normal class, fit, you can go without your phone for 50 minutes. If you are possibly going to have an emergency leave the room do not answer your phone in my classroom (laughs) no (laughs) yeah I mean those are my main things what about you so (laughs) I love day one because I just scare them all (laughs) kind of I kind of I kind of do but so next semester is going to be kind of tricky because I'd like to do like the no cell phone no laptop thing but it's sort of kind of like a hybrid class in that like the main lectures online and then all my recitations are in person. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking it's fine if I tell them no, none, no to that stuff in recitation. It might just be a little odd because they're supposed to use all that stuff for, <laughs> for yeah, the main right. lecture. But anyways, so yeah, so my first day, I said like, oh, my hard boundaries, you know, like hours, email. Mm-hmm. I'm usually very much... Yeah, no personal, no personal attacks. You know, debates are are fine. I always leave them with, you know, think it through before you speak. Like your opinion's fine, but once you throw it out there, it, it's open for debate. Someone else can disagree, and so if you're not ready to engage, you're probably better off not saying anything. Totally. And I also make it like very clear that I'm not going to take any other shit. Like what you get is what you get. Like I will be as <laughs> as fair as possible. If you think that there's an issue with it, bring it up to me. We'll discuss it. But like, unless you have a very good case of like, and it's usually my error somewhere, but, and I think CU can be a bit of a unique place. Some people like to throw 
their perceived entitlement around a little bit. So I like, mm-hmm. I try to nip that at, at, at the bud if I can. And then, yeah, I try to, it's funny because so I'll kind of follow like what I learned from a couple of professors when I was a student and like, I'm going to be, I'm going to kind of put up this front as being a hard ass, like the, towards the beginning of the semester, maybe like the first few weeks. And then kind of just start softening up as we go along, but, you know, always keeping my heart boundaries. Have you ever used the Socratic method? Isn't that what it's called? Where you just like randomly call on people? I have a couple of times. It's usually only been with like my 8 a.m. recitations. Because mm-hmm. those, those were like pulling teeth. Love doing that. It terrifies the absolute shit out of them though. But I think it keeps them paying attention. And it's also a good way to do like attendance. I just thought of this because one of the professors I really liked in undergrad, like you were mentioning, she did this and it was like, she would tell them in advance, like next week, I'm going to call on people whose last names start with A through C, be prepared. Hmm. And then it was like, if she were to call on you and you weren't there or you couldn't answer it, you do not get attendance for the day. You do not get a check mark next to your name. Ooh, that's intense. And it was like at the end of the semester, she'd go through and figure out how many check marks you had or like how many total there could have been. And that's how your attendance was based on. Like, how many did you get out of how many were available? Dang, that's wild. Yeah, I like it scared me so much at first. And then I was like, I just can't get enough of your classes. Cause I mean, she was a great professor anyway, but I might, I might do that. That's wild. I like that. I know. I mean, right? I hate it yeah. as a student, but Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> so I do have some advice for like that first day of class, like hit us with it, especially for the early PhD students, like for second years, especially if you're coming into a program that will take you straight from undergrad without a master's, you're not that much older than these students. You could be, but you know, the average undergrad student is what, like graduates at like 22, 23? 21, 22? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Say between 21 and 23, you're, you're, that's when you're usually graduating with an undergrad, with a bachelor's. You go into a PhD program, you're going to be 23, 24 if you're just going straight through. So you're got not going to be that much older than these people. So if you're in that situation, well, regardless of whether you have a master's or not, I wouldn't, don't state what, where in the program you're at. Don't yes. tell them I'm a yeah. first year PhD student. Don't tell them I'm a second year PhD student. All you have to tell them is that you're in the program. That's one of those times where vagueness is your friend. That's great advice. If you have a master's, I like to flaunt my master's because it puts another sort of another step of separation between me and my students and establishes my authority a little bit more. But if you don't have one, that's all right. Just don't tell them where in the program you're at. Keep it vague. Just tell them I'm a PhD student. Yeah. And Uh, now I think, yeah, I do that with my master's too. Actually, I always tell them that I have a master's in whatever. And now that we're a little bit farther into the program, I always drop the, you know, I'm in the final year or two of my program. I'm a candidate and blah, blah, blah. Along those lines, also don't don't give them the years that you graduated. Like from undergrad? Yeah. Because if you say I got my bachelor's, 
in 2020. <laughs> and they're like, going to know, yeah. You might as well tell them I'm, I'm also in my very first semester of the PhD program. Yeah. So. Uh, I thought you're, yeah, I guess how long ago I graduated with my undergrad is shining through because I was like, oh, what? Because they're going to call you old. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. When did I get my undergrad? 2016, I think. 2012. <laughs> and yeah. everyone is like, what? Yeah. I got my 2016, my master's in 2018. Yeah. But I'm not as young as people might think. I have gaps in places. Anyway, I cut you off. Other tips? No, that's fine. I think I cut you off too. So we're one for one. You didn't, but it's I'm the other sure thing, I, I guess, is like the dress code. <laughs> yeah. Which I have a lot of thoughts about. I think dress it's code. very dependent. So, oh, so, well, so when I was in LA, like I would dress pretty nice, like, or not nicely, but pretty formal. That's probably the better word. I did that here and I was like way out dressing my students to the point where I started to feel a little uncomfortable. Yeah. And so I started to sort of tone down, but still maintain a certain level of formality. So instead of coming in, say, in like a suit, I'd come in with like jeans, a button down and some dress shoes. A suit? Dude, if you're not wearing Birkenstocks with your suit, you are severely overdressed in Boulder. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think think dress code is going to be pretty location dependent because Boulder is a really laid back place. Like, Like, I don't think I've ever had a student not showed up in athleisure, however you say that. Yeah. I feel like I am a little bit different when it comes to the dress code part, like even given the fact that Boulder is very laid back, I try and kind of, Jose, what you were talking about is like establish myself as a professional who has more knowledge and information. And I do kind of try and set myself up as a hard ass that, like you said, you know, not, I'm not going to take your crap. And so maybe the first day I'll like dress a little bit nicer. And then I'm like, all of a sudden wearing jeans with holes in a sweatshirt and then some days i'm like full like what what did we call it hipster vibes where i have like dress pants on with like some chucks and like a t-shirt with like a blazer or a bomber jacket i'm all over the place and but some people will say like you should always be dressing professionally for the setting whatever that may be there are definitely days where some of my undergrads outdress me it's not very common but it does happen. Uh, yeah, I don't, I've never had that. Yeah, I don't ever drop down before below business casual. And like, I'm not saying that, you know, my way is better than yours. <laughs> no, but, it's you know. fine. But I mean, it's just like, when, and I think it also, it's also what do you like to wear? Because yeah. to me, like, I love wearing that stuff, you know, back when it fit. <laughs> but I mean, if you look, I don't know. I'm I kind of I'm starting to dig like the business casual kind of hipstery look. Like yeah. if people look at our Twitter and look at my photos on that last day of ASC, like I might start rocking that as like my normal teaching outfit. You liked my look that day too. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, all of this to say that I think it probably depends on your department and then the location that you're in. 
but I also don't, I think some people will try and give you a hard time about what you're wearing, but I think the most important thing is for you to feel comfortable and like you can teach and whatever that means for you. Yeah. Yeah. If you feel like whatever you're wearing, you're going to have, you're going to stand there thinking like, am I dressed well enough? Am I dressed well enough? Then maybe, you know, take like that next step to where you won't be having those thoughts. Like dress up until where you feel comfortable and like, it's not going to be a distraction. Cause actually, so that's what happened to me. Like my first couple of times teaching, like my very first semester was I was actually way too overdressed. And so I kept thinking like, wow, I'm like way overdressed. I'm like way overdressed. And I, I kind of had to find like a little bit of that comfort level to where it was no longer an issue. All right. Do we want to talk about our own class at all? I mean, I don't know if we need, I mean, there's like a lot of similarities. The main thing that I would say, so I've only taught my own class once. It was a undergrad introduction to statistics class. And the main thing here for me was plan your syllabus ahead of time and try and use like things from professors that you've liked in the past. So I had, I think four different people's syllabi for that class. And I chose what I liked and I left out what I didn't. And I added some of my own stuff in there, but you want to make your syllabus incredibly clear, like deadlines, late assignments, what you're willing to take, how much you're taking off email, all of that. You want everything to be super clear and you don't want to be vague. A lot of people have started to do like syllabus quizzes where like they'll give a a point or a couple of points for people like of extra credit to fill this out to like ensure that you've read it. I did that. I don't know that I would do it again. Uh, Yeah. And then like, I never liked those. Yeah. And then like the last thing is just to stay on top of stuff. It's really easy to fall behind on like lecture planning. And so I always, I was trying to stay like two weeks in advance. And then I would just quickly review whatever I was going to talk about before I actually did it. And I did record my lectures, which I'm not entirely sure how much I loved doing that either, but it's a learning experience. And I did a lot of it on my own. I didn't ask for a lot of help or a lot of advice, which I think was good and bad. And now Jose and I are actually teaching the same class in the summer, just at different times. So that'll be fun. Yeah. And it, and it is a crime like a criminal justice class instead of stats. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It should be all right. Yeah. I'll see. Anything else on teaching that we should touch on? I think we can very briefly touch on, on grading again, whether you're TAing for somebody or teaching our class, like your syllabus is going to sort of dictate what that's going to look like more. So if you're TAing that professor might have certain expectations of you when you're grading Rubrics are awesome when grading, especially if you make it clear to them that that's a criteria you're going to be using. Cause then there's, I think there's like a study somewhere that says that students will bitch less when there's a, a rubric involved because it's hundred percent. It sort of dissipates this thinking of that your grading is subjective. And, and like, as far as how much feedback to give them, I'm pretty heavy handed when it comes to feedback, which some students love, some students hate. So are we talking about papers? 
Yeah, with papers and yeah. exams too. I never give feedback on exams. On papers, I usually do like a weaning off method. So like your first paper, I will mark two kingdom come. And then every paper after that, I mark less and less until usually like the paper before your final paper, I will kind of just give you a grade and give you some overall thoughts because the expectation is you'll be incorporating my feedback and your papers will get better and closer to what it is that I'm looking for. That is I, also don't, I also don't really have the time to be kind of giving you feedback. Oh, it takes like, so long. Like, you know, to hell and back I don't for think every they, paper. I don't think they realize how long it takes. Like it takes a long time to do that. Yeah, I think a good thing. Oh, so one thing that I do do is I will, if they want more detailed feedback, I tell them to come to office hours and then I'll reread their paper and give them more feedback that way. But it won't be like an automatic thing. Also be ready for people to, no matter how much you tell them to do something, to never do it. Like I had people who I kept telling from the first paper that they needed to format their papers in ASA and still to their very final paper, gave it to me in Chicago. So. Yep. That, yep. Absolutely. (laughs) But that's just how it goes. And I mean, Always remember that no matter what level you're at, whether it's your first year in a PhD program or your last, you know more than your undergraduates do, no matter what. Like you are in a program, you got here on your own merit. And even if you're so nervous, like my first semester teaching, I think for like the first three weeks, I couldn't eat before I taught because I was so nervous and it gets better. I don't know yeah. if you were nervous, Jose, you seem, you know, mm. tougher than me, but <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't. I think yeah. I got nervous my first day and then I kind of got over it. And yeah, I think my last piece of advice would be deliver your material with conviction. Like if it sounds like you're second guessing yourself, they're going to second guess you too. Even mm-hmm. if you're not a hundred percent sure, deliver it with conviction go home, look it up, verify the information. And if you need to come back the next time and say, hey, sorry, I looked further into it and turns out this is actually what it is, that's perfectly okay too. Oh, I guess I have at least one more thing on that note. If someone asks you a question and you don't know the answer, I personally think it's perfectly fine to say that you are not sure and that you can look into it if they're interested and to send you an email to remind you to look into it. Like anytime any student wants me to do something, I'm always like, email me. And that like, if they don't email me, then that's it. So yeah, deliver with conviction, but also don't be afraid to say that you don't know, because I kind of think it's refreshing when you hear professors say that in a way, because they're establishing that, yeah, they're really smart, but like, they don't know everything, but they're willing to figure it out for you. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess I should amend my statement a little bit. Don't bullshit them either. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm going to say, hey, I like, didn't know. <laughs> like, no, I'm saying like, like if you're not a hundred percent sure, but you think what you're saying is correct, still deliver it with conviction. And then if you need to fact check it, that's okay. Like, don't worry about it too much. You know, don't be bullshitting your students either, though. Like, yeah, if you straight up don't know, just yeah, just tell them you don't know. But it's because I mean, it's happened to me where. Someone asked me a question. It was like some proportion of whatever. And I said, I forget. I gave them a range. It was like, say like 30 to 40%. 
said it. They took it. It was like, cool, we moved on. Then I looked it up later that night, and it was actually closer to like 15, 20%. So I just gave them like the updated statistic the next time I saw them. But, you know, it's like a minor thing. If it's something that's like, like, quote, like pivotal to what you're saying, then that might be a little different. Yeah, probably. But all right, yeah. we should probably move into research. Yeah, let's do it. All right. All right. So research assistantships are, I don't know. Do you like them better than teaching? I want to say yes, mostly because that's sort of where I like to be for the most part. I don't get me wrong. I like teaching, but research, especially applied research and program eval is sort of where I really want it to be. So I like it a little bit more. These are basically a professor will basically hire you out of a grant or whatever that they have to come and work on a project with them. And that can be all sorts of things that most of what Jose and I have worked on have been primary data collection projects, but you could also be hired on to do secondary data collection or I don't know. Clean up an analysis. Yeah. Yeah. Clean up analyses, clean up data. I've even seen someone get hired as an RA to update a website. Okay. Yeah. So all, all sorts of things fit under here. And there are, so there are research assistantships where that is like all you're doing that semester. Like you're not teaching too. And there's also, which I've done this every single semester, even ones that I haven't been official RA where you're teaching, but you're also working on projects with professors. And I think a lot of people do that anyway, just based off of the fact that we're in grad school. So we're typically working on a thousand things all at once, but they're kind of cool, cool opportunities. A lot of the times, I mean, we've done Jose and I like listed off everything that we've done. Now I'm just going to read it quick and then we can dive into some of this, but we've done all sorts of things. So we've helped develop our IRBs, our institutional review board documents, We've helped with establishing the research design for projects. We've done open science framework pre-registration or OSF. We've done Qualtrics survey programming, survey development, field work, including ride-alongs, interviewing all sorts of people, both juveniles and adults, done contact management with participants over long-term projects, cleaning, merging, and coding data, biannual updates to funders, and worked on sending data to ICPSR, which is kind of like a data consortium. So we've done all sorts of things. High five to that. So yeah, so being an RA doesn't just have to do with, you know, working with data and doing like straight up, like just pure unadulterated research. It's also a lot of the nitty gritty stuff that has to happen behind the scenes, the administrative stuff, like going through like the IRB and we have an episode on IRB. So listen to that to kind of some of the, the challenges that might come up with having to work with IRB. You know, like the fieldwork stuff, like that's, you know, gathering data, that's fun. That's what we like to do. But, yeah. you know, I mean, for talk this- about, let's talk about fieldwork real quick because okay. that's the fun part. So, yeah. Jose, what kind of fieldwork do you do? Yeah, so I'm pretty sure I've mentioned it a couple of times. So I'm working on this NIJ grant with David Pyrus. We're evaluating the Gang Reduction Initiative of Denver their gang intervention program. And what I get to do is at least once a week, I go to 
where Grid has their team meetings. I observe how they sort of talk about the program, talk about the job they do. I get to do ride-alongs with the outreach workers. So I get to sort of shadow them for a day, see how they interact with clients. I get to sit in on the multidisciplinary team meetings, see how partners from different agencies interact with each other and, you know, try to kind of have certain things that I'm on the lookout for, but also trying to see if anything new comes up that we hadn't sort of planned for. Yeah, it gets to just, I won't say it's easy work because it's not as actually a real pain in the ass to do. It's exhausting. But it's also really fun. You know, I get to just kind of hang out with the outreach workers sometimes, have lunch and kind of shoot the breeze a little bit. And I get, and, you know, I still with my researcher cap on as we're having like sort of these informal conversations. So kind of probing for, for information a little bit. So even when they don't think we're really kind of doing work, I kind of still am. So yeah, so field work, that, that's the fun part. Yeah. And then I know, and then you and I have done interviews. I've done both qual and quant interviews and you've done both too, I believe. Yeah, kind of. I mean, so I've, like you've I mean, had your open-ended in, questions, right? I've worked on a, yeah, I've worked on a ton of different projects. I mean, the two main ones, the Lone Star Texas Prisoner Reentry Project, I came in like on the tail end of that. So I helped with the like longer term follow-up interviews, contact management, trying to get people to talk to us to do their interviews. I did go to a prison in Texas to do a reincarceration interview which that was actually the summer before I even started at the program here. It was like on my birthday, basically, or right before my birthday. And I was in the car with another grad student who I'd barely met for 18 hours. <laughs> that was an experience. We really bonded over that. Shout out to Kendra, who has done an episode for the podcast as well. And then my other like main one is the Oregon Solitary Confinement Step up reentry program or step down, which they're more commonly known where I was involved in that from like the get-go helped with developing the randomized control trial helped kind of in more of a student, obviously see it helped kind of help them develop the unit and then started working on the program evaluation. I've done, you know, 13, 14 interviews with people in solitary confinement, restrictive housing, I guess is what they would want us to call it. I've been to the prison. I've been to the unit. I've been into the restrictive housing cells. And yeah, then I've also done an interview with like a prison administrator, which was much more open-ended and qualitative. So yeah, like getting to go into prisons as a correction scholar is really cool. Getting to meet administrators and talk to them and figure out how they feel about these programs, which I could go on forever about how difficult it is to implement programming in prison or to create change, but it's a really cool opportunity when you actually get to do that and you have people who are on board wanting to do it and getting to talk to people who have been, you know, in prison possibly for 40, 50 years, or even some people that are a lot younger, they have a lot of experiences. And yeah, that is, I mean, that is the fun part. It's so like, if you I mean, like the days that we would go into the prisons, they're so long. They're such long days. You get there like as soon as they'll possibly let you in and you stay until it's dinner time. And like, maybe you might leave to get lunch, but at the end of the day, you're like, I just want to go to sleep. 
But then of course you have to do like the debriefing, right? With your team, you got to go through what happened, how the day went, what you can do better. But yeah, that's the, I mean, that's the, that's the fun part. Yeah. But there, there is all that nitty gritty stuff though, which is the majority of what what we do. A lot of it is, yeah. Another fun part, but that is like, is part of the nitty gritty is like the survey development. So you and I both have, have been part of survey development. So one of the great things that can come out of RA ships is the data that you collect could then turn into your dissertation. And so if you have the opportunity to be on a project from the beginning, yeah, I know. So we both have suffered setbacks because of COVID. But anyway, so in an ideal world, world, it would turn into sort of the basis for a dissertation. But if you have the opportunity to be part of the survey development, it can be a real neat experience because you can kind of see how it is that these things sort of come into fruition and how you decide what is going to be asked and what's going to be included. How you're going to ask it, because that's really important. Yeah, how you're going to ask it. So like for us, we had to, to tweak questions to sort of compensate for the sort of average like education level of the participants. So, you know, you can't throw out some fancy schmancy academic word. Sometimes you got to use layman terms. It depends on your age too. Like I have been involved in a survey development for a new project or a new program evaluation. And some of our people could be 10 and you got to ask a 10 year old a different, like you can't word it the same as you would for an 18 year old. Right. Yeah. But you also, so at least for me, I don't know if this is the same for you, but I got to sort of fight for some of the stuff that would be included so if there were some measures that I wanted to have included, I had the chance to push for them and sort of make my case as to why they should be included and also sort of promise that they wouldn't just go unused if we did collect them. Absolutely. Because, um, you know, survey space is precious. So that was fun and interesting and a really good experience. Oh, yeah. I love survey development. I've helped. I don't even know how many surveys I've helped develop now at this point. And I just it's so much fun and they're all different. I mean, some of them have like similarities, but you have to think about your research questions and the goal of the project and what you're trying to get out of it and learning like the kinds of questions that you might originally think are like fantastic ideas and then piloting your survey with people, which is important to do. And they're like, I don't even know what that means. And you have to like figure out how to change your question because, yeah, it has to be understood correctly by everyone. Yeah. But I mean, there's some of the the nitty gritty stuff that's not as super duper fun. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see what else. So I think with our A-ships, there can be a little bit more flexibility, which can be challenging. So like I'm in charge of setting up my own ride-alongs, my own, like when I'm going to go out into the field and do whatever. So the onus is really on me. It's not like when you're a TA, they tell you you're going to have classes on these days at these hours. So it's really on me to work with the participants to get that all set up and get it done and, you know, make sure that I'm pulling my own weight in the project. So there is a level of double-edged sword stuff with being an RA. And I mean, there are, like with a TA ship, I mean, the typical hours is what, 20 here? Some weeks it's yeah. going to be less, some weeks it's it's going to be a little bit more, but like sometimes with 
research assistantships, you are, you're working a lot and, you know, you want to do the work because it's cool stuff, not all of the nitty gritty, but you're getting to the cool stuff. And so, I mean, there are positives and negatives. Yeah. I mean, just like with a teaching assistantship with RA ships, set the expectations at the beginning figure out if there's going to be publications that come out of it. And if so, what are the expectations for that? So on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any advice for RA ships? Let's see. Stay super organized. Your calendar is your best friend. It's going to be really easy to forget things. So uh, your calendar is crucial for keeping everything in order. And a lot of times there are also like team meetings when you have an RA ship. So that way everyone's on the same board, especially when you're like in the midst of collecting data. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much to say about it, but I just, (laughs) yeah. If anyone wants to talk to us about research assistantships, we are more than welcome and happy to share our experiences and more details. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's move into the third subject just briefly, which is service and doing service work in grad school. There's really like three things that I kind of thought of, one of which is manuscript reviewing. The second one is like professional service. Like a lot of grad students end up being panel chairs at conferences. And then the third one is engaging with your department or your university in service positions, which can entail all sorts of things. So let's just... Super quickly, let's start with the department service and work backward. Yeah. So for me, that's usually taken the role of serving on a committee. Mm-hmm. I've served on a couple, not too many. I, I try to do, I think I've done one every year. I think 2020, I might not have done one, mostly because of like COVID stuff and, you know, my kid and trying to get my you know my life kind of back on track but i think i've i've tried to serve on at least one committee every year that i've been here i think it's pretty common for people to do most of their department service at the beginning of the phd program and then kind of wean off of it as you move through i've also done at least one every year except last year too yeah 2020 was i didn't do anything last year but Yeah, we're not counting that year. Yeah. But I mean, sometimes these service positions require a lot of commitment, like every other week or every week that you have to go and do something. Others, it's like there's a lot of commitments, but it's really grouped in like one month. Like Jose and I have both served on our graduate student open house committee, where we've really kind of helped take the prospective students around and helped plan and go out to eat with them. But that's like all in March. Yeah. And some of them are even for shorter than that, where you're just like asked to be on a panel to talk about surviving the first year or thriving, not surviving your first year. I will also point out that I don't know that if it's a coincidence, but Jen and I were on the open house committee the year that we had a gigantic cohort. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> That's because like, we're yeah, yeah, like 20 people accepted their offers to see you after Jen and I threw what is apparently an amazing open house. And we're doing it this year too. So come apply to see you. 
Yeah. Well, I would probably should take all the credit. There were like two other people on that committee. I know, but still come and fly yeah. to see you. Come hang yeah. out with us. Yeah. All right. So professional service. I've never been a panel chair. I don't think I have too much professional service to talk about. I've only done, I've only been a panel chair once and I was like thrown into it, which I think is pretty common. But if you've been to a conference, you've probably seen what a panel chair does. It's really just keeping track of time and introducing people. And that is a line that can go on your CV. So if you've done that, make sure you acknowledge it. I really don't know what else really fits under there. I mean, I have like the podcast on there, but. Yeah. Well, you can also like, you can also serve. So for like ASC, like there's committees for ASC, there's like the ASC divisions and they also have committees that you can serve on. So yeah, it's basically what you would do for your department just for a professional association, I think for the most part. All right. And then last but not least, manuscript reviewing, which I got into reviewing manuscripts I think I was in my second year of the program and I did two of them with my main advisor. Like the first one we both did and then we compared and the second one I wrote and then he looked at it and we talked about it. And since then I have just been doing them on my own and you can get on the, like you can go and set yourself up to be a reviewer on different websites, like on different journal websites. If you've never done this before, you can kind of throw yourself into the mix Otherwise, it's all about connections, meeting people and getting in there. Yeah. You could also ask whoever your advisor is that if they ever come across a request for a review and they think that you might be good for it to send it your way, especially right now that journals are hurting for reviewers. Yeah. Maybe we should do something on actually like reviewing a manuscript. Yeah. That could be a good episode. We've, yeah. we've kind of touched on that with our episode with Chris Sullivan, but. Um, but he kind of gave us like the tips and tricks from an editor standpoint. Yeah. yeah. So maybe okay. you'll see that coming out soon. Yeah. I like manuscript reviewing. I do too. It can be fun. You can kind of get exposed to what's kind of being submitted out there. Um, if you're doing these and it feels like it's taking forever, that's Okay apparently you get better at it and it goes quicker. I don't feel like I've reached that point yet. It still takes me like a full day to do a review. Yeah. I can crank them out in about four hours. Oh, that's good. It like takes me that long to figure out what I want to say. <laughs> yeah. Right. Cool. Services. It's good to do. Some of it isn't always the most thrilling, but I feel like I've learned a lot by doing all three different things in particular. I mean, the majority that I've done is department and manuscript reviewing, Same. but I always feel like I learn a lot by doing all of them and it's good to get your feet wet in that stuff. So don't be scared to do it. You can do it. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Jan. Any final (laughs) comments, discussion things you'd like to No, I don't think so. I mean, the main thing is just Jose and I actually have, I mean, going through this, I think both of us have a good amount of experience in all of these things at this point. So if you ever have any questions, yeah, feel free to reach out to us. Yeah, I will agree with that. Anything that you'd like to plug? Nope. What about you? I don't think so either. I mean, I have some stuff in the works, but I don't know when 
that's gonna come out hopefully yep. soon and you can people find can us find twitter. us on twitter <laughs> at j sanchez 318 and jen toesleep at jen toesleep or and our... at the crim academy yep cool uh, yeah all right cool thanks jose thanks jen bye bye hey thanks for listening Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time. time.